In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I am happy to be with you uh, in this blessed church. This is my first visit here after the establishment of this new community. And it is good actually to have a church named after Saint Mary of Egypt. Uh, this saint is very famous in her repentance and in spite of her previous sinful life, she, after her repentance, she reached a high level of spirituality and uh, she is considered one of the Anachorite. Um, so it's a great blessing to have church named after Saint Mary of Egypt. Tonight, our Bible study from the Gospel of Saint John, chapter 13, will start from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 38. So 21 verses. Uh, so in the first part of the chapter, we read about how the Lord Jesus Christ washed the feet of the disciples and he explained to them the, the, the symbolism of this mystery. Washing the feet is a symbol of the sacrament of repentance and uh, confession and also uh, humbleness. That is actually the first requirement to be uh, an apostle or to be a servant of the Lord, to min minister of the word, actually completely denial of yourself and to, to the ministry in the Coptic Orthodox Church or in Christianity in, gen in general is a ministry of washing the feet of others. Then uh, the Lord actually uh, spoke about in, in verse in verse 10, he said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And St. John made a comment in verse 11, For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he said, Not all of you, this was a reference to Judas Iscariot without any more uh, elaboration. He did not say anything. Then in verse 18, he said, start to speak again about Judas Iscariot. And he said, I do not speak concerning all of you. When he said, you are not all clean, he made it clear here. I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And this psalm, actually, uh, this quote is the, from the book of Psalm. This psalm is the psalm of the 11th hour of Covenant Thursday. So, uh, in Covenant Thursday, while Abuna is distributing 
the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the psalm that's read in the 11th hour, uh, referring to how Judas, according to some church fathers, after he ate the bread, he took communion, uh, has lifted up his heel against the Lord Jesus Christ, that the act of betrayal. Uh, the church father will split in their opinion whether Judas took communion or not. Many church fathers supported that he took communion and others supported that he did not take communion. So if he did not take communion, then the bread here refers to the Passover meal. If he took communion, the bread refers to the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 18, the, the Lord unveils the plan of Judas to betray him. He, he spoke in verse 10 that you are not all clean. Now he is unfolding the plan of Judas. It was getting close, and the Lord wanted to reveal the plan to his disciples, who could never have imagined that such a thing could occur by someone from among them. The last thing that they can actually believe that one of the 12, the very inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of them be the traitor, is the one who betray and deliver the Lord Jesus Christ to the hand of his enemies. And we notice how the Lord Jesus Christ did not generalize when he spoke about that sin. Rather, he praised the others for being pure vessels when he said, you are all clean, but not all of you. But at the same time, he neither gave details about the crime nor revealed the name of the offender. So the Lord here, the, the purpose of this message, two things. Number one, when it will happen, so the people will, be, the disciples will believe that the Lord foretold them before it happens about the betrayal. And number two, actually, to send a message to Judas. Maybe he repent and uh, stop himself from the act of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord underlines that all these events had been foretold in the Holy Bible. This verse, uh, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, is taken from Psalm 41, verse 9. And the Lord also did not state the motivation that drove Judas Iscariot. We know that Judas was greedy, lover of, my, uh, of money. And that's why the evangelist had referred it to him when Judas criticized Mary, the sister of Lazarus, for pouring the fragrant oil on the Lord's feet. So the, the evangelist referred to Judas to tell us that uh, the intention or the motivation because the love of money. He was a greedy person. And many scholars 
have attempted to analyze and elaborate on the reasons and motives of this betrayal deed. However, none of the evangelists has tried to provide a full presentation of the motives of that traitor. But here I like to say some points about Judas. Judas, the Lord Jesus Christ, had chosen Judas to be an apostle, one of the twelve, the very inner circle that surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what kind of man Judas was. But Jesus, nevertheless, had chosen him to give him opportunity to repent. Judas did not sin in order to fulfill the scripture. No. Nor God compelled Judas to act in this way. As the Lord said, the Son of Man is going as it is written for him or about him. So this means whether Judas betrayed him or not, the cross and the economy of salvation would be fulfilled. So Judas did not do it to fulfill the scripture, nor God compelled Judas to do so. The Lord warned them of this, warned all the apostles of this ahead of time. So they could understand and believe when it was fulfilled. He informed them in advance about his death and all the events related to that. To tell them, I accepted death by my own will. Nobody actually imposed death on me. I have authority to lay my soul down and to take it up again. And if I did not will to lay my soul down, nobody would be able to kill me. So, the purpose of informing them that their belief that he is the Messiah was reinforced. And after the fulfillment of those things Jesus had been describing, he had a work for them to do. Now he will send them to fulfill and to complete his mission on earth. That's why in verse 19, now I tell you before it comes, I am telling you about all these events before it comes, that when it does come to pass, when you see Judas betraying me, you may believe that I am he, that I am the Messiah. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So the Lord now, he told them, now I am sending you to preach the gospel. While you are preaching the gospel, there will be traitors like Judas. And as Judas actually betrayed me, some will betray you. Some will deliver you to your death. But I want to assure you that who receives whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. And 
if I, the Master and Lord, was betrayed, don't be surprised if you are betrayed also. So, in that work, they would be received by some people and not by others. Not everyone will receive them. He wanted them to know that the treatment they received for doing his work were, was the same treatment being given to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his Father. So if they receive them, they receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. And they are not to be disheartened by betrayal, even in their midst, for this he had foreseen. As he had foreseen the betrayal of Judas, then they also can be betrayed. And there is a lesson to all of us here. The Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing the condition he places on us, how we receive his ambassadors, how we receive his servants, those who carry his authority and the power of his words. We must willingly and obediently receive those he has placed in authority over us who are charged with carrying the gospel of the living word to the world. But scholar origin had an observation here. Scholar origin said, the Lord said, he who receives whomever I send, and did not say instead, whomever, whoever believes in you, believes in me, or whoever sees you, sees me. Scholar origin meant that the Lord wished us to accept his disciples, but he doesn't wish us to have faith in them too, because they are human beings, because they can be weak, like Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, or some priests may deviate from the faith, like Arius, he was a priest. Some patriarch, like Nostorius, the patriarch of Constantinople, also uh, drifted from the true faith. If he says, who believes in you, this means we should believe in any uh, clergyman, whether he is uh, a false shepherd or a true shepherd. But he instructed us to receive them with honor, and when we receive them, we receive the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father. That's why St. Cyril, in all his letters, to uh, Nestorius before his excommunication. He addressed him with all honor and dignity in spite of his heresy, but in all the letters he addressed him with dignity and honor befits his authority as the patriarch of Constantinople until he was excommunicated. Because sometimes when we assume that somebody made a mistake, 
then actually we speak about him in a very degrading way. But this is not the teaching of the scripture. Verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So, in verse 18, he just said, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his seal against me, as the psalmist said. Now, he's elaborating more. He said, one of you will betray me. Why he was troubled? Once more, the reality of Christ's humanity is brought before us. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is God-man, is perfect human and perfectly divine, but these two natures are united together without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration. So, many times we read in the scripture that he was troubled in the spirit. Like in John chapter 11, 33, 35, 38, in raising of Lazarus, in John chapter 12, 27, and here in John chapter 13, the word he was troubled because he was perfect human. He has spoken of the future of those who are true to their commission as apostles. And he told them, who receives you, receives me. Now, he turns in deep emotion to Judas, of whom these words cannot be spoken. He cannot say about Judas, whoever receives you, receives me. So while he is speaking about the rest of the apostles, his heart was troubled for Judas. He left with him three years. And definitely Jesus loved Judas. And he, he was troubled that Judas would perish. So this feeling of trouble was not due to fear of death or fear of the unknown, but due to an anxiety and concern for that disciple Judas who had dared to betray his master and Lord. This feeling are feeling of love, feeling of anguish toward one of his uh, disciples that lived with him for three years. It is bad enough to sin against his master, to be unfaithful in fulfilling his duties of him. So if Judas was unfaithful uh, apostle, uh, he, he did not do his duty in, in faithfulness and in wisdom, that's bad enough. But the sin of Judas was more. To betray the Lord Jesus Christ means to take sides with his enemies and to make use of his special position as one of the 12, the very inner circle around the Lord Jesus Christ as a disciple to assist and to aid the enemy in defeating his master. So how the disciples reacted when they heard these words? Verse 22, then the disciples looked at one another 
perplexed about whom he spoke. They couldn't believe that one of the disciples, one of them would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is clear that the behavior of Judas Iscariot did not arouse any kind of suspicion. No one suspected him, suspected Judas at all. And St. John the Evangelist, he still remembers when he wrote his gospel, the look of astonishment, the way in which each tried to read the expression of his brother as they all heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, which asserted that there was a traitor in their midst. So now, in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. The way, actually, the custom of the guests to recline at the table rather than sitting at the table. Recline how? how? To lean on his left arm, leaving his right arm free. Then the feet were stretched out behind the guest on his right hand. So they are leaning on left and they stretch their feet on the right hand. And the back of his head reached to the bosom of the guest on his left. That's how they were sitting. So John, whom Jesus loved, was reclining and leaning on the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not mention himself because the evangelists are not accustomed to mention their own names when any mark of favor or good deed is recorded because they did not seek publicity. St. John uh, was the one who was reclining at the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. So Peter didn't know about whom the Lord was speaking. So he motioned to John, and St. John was the right person who could put the question to the Lord because he was sitting very, very close to the Lord and also he was loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He occupied a special place and he sat next to him and leaned on his bosom. When Peter asked it, this question was not out of mere curiosity, but from an honest intention and pure zeal. Then, verse 25, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? The word leaning in verse 23 is different than the word leaning in verse 25 in the original Greek text. So these are two different words. But in English, they translated the same word. So, leaning back on Jesus' breast, this is different word from the word leaning in verse 23. Leaning here means falling back or reclining on the bosom of Jesus. So, 
When Jesus, when Peter spoke, John laid his head back on the bosom of Jesus. Why? So that he could speak to him privately without being heard by others. As if he was whispering in his ear, asking who this person is. And uh, John asked Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, and this answer was also whispering in the ears of John, as I will explain. So not everybody heard this answer. Uh, I will explain. So Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So, the only one who knew this was Judas, not the rest of the disciples. The Lord did not name Judas, but he gave a sign by which John may recognize the traitor, and maybe he can convey the answer to the question. He can answer Peter and tell him it is Judas. Giving peace of the bread was a token of friendship and love. And it was an oriental custom for the host to offer such a piece of bread to any favored guest. So when the Lord actually dipped this piece of bread and gave it to Judas, this was an act of love. Actually, this act of love would have redeemed the heart of Judas, even if his heart is full of treachery, if this heart was ready to receive this act of love. So our Lord gave him the last opportunity to escape by giving him the bread of fellowship. St. Augustine said, the focus is not on what is given. Don't focus on the piece of the bread and you say how this is a symbol of fellowship or symbol of love, but on the person who received the gift, whether he will receive it in a heart full of love or not. The nature of that person is greatly important rather than the nature of the object offered. It depends on the person who receives and handles an object. You may give a very, very expensive gift to somebody and he receive it with grumbling and lack of appreciation and ungratefulness. And, and you may give just a card to a person and he will receive it with gratefulness and appreciation. Why was the bread given to the traitor, St. August, Augustine con continuing? It could be for no other purpose but to serve as a witness to a blessing received by an ungrateful person. So this piece of bread will be witness against Judas that God gave him fellowship of love, but he had ungrateful heart. 
because Judas had already betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. As we know from the other Gospels, he betrayed Jesus after Wednesday dinner at Bethany. So, and he went and made a deal with the uh, chief priests. And this event that we are mentioning today on Thursday, so already he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ reached out beyond Judas' betrayal by washing his feet. And he treated him with kindness and respect right up to the final moment when Judas completely closes his heart to Christ and opens his heart completely to the devil. That's why we read in verse 27, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So if the, if the Lord actually spoke out loud and everybody heard his words, uh, to whom I will give the piece of the bread is the one who will betray me, then they wouldn't actually uh, think that Judas is going to buy uh, stuff uh, to the poor, to give them gifts for the feast of Passover. This actually explains that the Lord whispered into the ear of John uh, that it is Judas by giving him the sign even without mentioning the name of Judas. So when the Lord told him, what you do, do quickly, it's not intended as advice, but as permission from the Lord that Judas accomplish his plan. As if the Lord saying, I am offering my body as a sacrifice by my own will and authority alone. The Lord Desorbs him of all the blessing. He took from him all the blessing because he was resolved to surrender to treachery and evil. That's why when the Lord actually withdrew all the blessing, then Satan entered into his heart. The Lord Jesus Christ read the secrets of the heart and so it was wholly given up to evil. That's why he told him, what you do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew. This a comment of the apostles, apostle of St. John. So St. John said, no one at the table knew. As he writes in remembers of the impression made at the time upon uh, uh, the impression of the disciples made at the time upon all who were present. So, none of the apostles realized that Jesus is the traitor. They heard our Lord Jesus saying to Judas, what do you do, do quickly. But none of them knew until afterward that these words refer to the betrayer. For Judas to leave before the end of the meal was extremely unusual. 
but they, they felt maybe there is some urgent, uh, urgent matter he need to attend to. So the disciples believed Jesus had sent him on some mission since he was the treasurer of the group. So it's clear that no one heard what the Lord whispered in St. John's ear. That's why no one had any reason to suspect Judas. They believed he was doing a charitable deeds during the feast. St. John Chrysostom has a comment here. He said, if someone were to ask, why did Judas carry a money box whereas the Lord Jesus Christ taught and said, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belt nor bag for your journey nor tunics nor sandals or staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. So if the Lord is teaching so, why the Lord and the disciples carried money box with, with them? So our answer, St. John Christum saying, would be Judas carried a money box which was used to serve the poor. That's why they suspected that he is going to do a charitable deeds to the poor during the time um, of the feast. So they did not carry the money box for their own needs, but uh, for the poor. Verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. It was night, actually, it is a symbol of his soul and of his deed, darkness. We cannot say that St. John meant this word when he said, and it was night. He just was describing. He, he just expressing this happened during night time. But the inspiration of the Holy Spirit used this word to indicate actually the fullness of the meaning that these words refers to Judas. It was night. He stepped forth from the light into darkness. Judas stepped forth from the light to darkness. From the presence and guidance of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to be possessed by and guided by the prince of darkness. It was night. So, verse 31, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God, God the Father, is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, as God the Father is glorified in the Son, God will also glorify him in himself. God the Father will glorify the Son in himself. So Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, me, is glorified. And in me, the Father is also glorified. And if the Father is glorified in me, then the Father will glorify me in myself and glorify him immediately. And the Father glorified the Son when he raised him from the dead in the resurrection. So the Son glorified the Father by fulfilling the economy of the Father, the will of the Father in saving the world. 
That's how the son glorified the father. And the father glorified the son by raising him from the dead. And immediately, because this talk was Thursday night and Jesus rose on early morning on uh, Sunday. So, these remarkable words plainly imply that up to this moment, the Lord was not freely speaking. He was restrained by the presence of Judas, the presence of the traitor within the little circle of his holiest fellowship on earth prevented the free and full outpouring of his heart. That's why once Judas left, the going out of Judas, is the sign that the, the betrayal and the death, death of the Son of Man was at hand. So Jesus, Jesus now started to speak freely and about his glory. And because of the death of the Son of Man, this was actually the glory of, of Jesus because his work was accomplished. The purpose of his incarnation is this moment. For this hour I have come. So he speaks of this glory as present. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now the Son of Man is glorified. And I want you to notice after Judas left, maybe if we are in the same situation, would backbite or speak negatively about the traitor. But the Lord made no reflections on Judas, no reference of his character. Also, he did not speak about his suffering to, to make the, the, the disciples sympathize with him, to tell them, because of Judas, I will suffer, and this will happen, and this will happen, to actually get the support of the disciples. But actually, he spoke about his suffering and his cross as glory. He speak of that which was presently to be, as if was already done. Now the Son of Man is glorified, as if he is already glorified, as if he is already crucified. The glory of the Son of Man in the redemption of the world. And this glory is the glory of the Father, because the Father, the Father's will is to save the world. And the Father gave his only begotten Son for the life of the world, that by the Son the world may, might be saved. And there is contrast drawn here between the humanity and the divinity united in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Humanity and how he will be glorified by dying on the cross. Divinity, how he will be glorified and rise from the dead. So he said, the Father will be glorified in him, in his person, in the person of the Son of Man. When he suffers and when he is crucified, the Father will be glorified because he will declare to us by his suffering the attribute and the majesty and the glory of God the Father. Meaning what? On the cross, 
God actually revealed to us the justice, the holiness, and the love of God the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, by accepting to be crucified, he glorified the Father. He revealed to the whole world the love of the Father, the holiness of the Father, the justice of the Father, the mercies of the Father. Now, the hour of his glory has arrived. And what is very remarkable, in five brief clauses, he repeats this word glorify five times. As if, to his view, an illumination of glory is played at the moment about the cross. So the Lord is saying, the cross is the moment of glory. That's why he repeated the word glorify, glorify five times. This glory proclaimed the love of Father who sacrificed his only begotten Son for the salvation of the world. And as the Father was glorified through the death of the Son, the Father also will glorify the Son by proclaiming the glory of the Son through his resurrection from the dead. So the Father will glorify the Son by his resurrection of the Son. So the Son was glorified in himself when he rose from the dead as one who possesses power and authority because he, he rose from the dead by his power and by his authority. And this glory was quickly fulfilled through his resurrection. That's why he said, and will glorify him immediately, immediately. Verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, few hours until he will be crucified. We're speaking Thursday night now. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the thought of his glory brings with it the thought of their state of orphanage. They will become orphan. He will die and he will leave them like orphans. Um, so now he addresses them, little children. This is a word of tenderness and is spoken only by the Lord Jesus Christ here. Uh, the word impressed itself upon the mind of John. He remembered very well this word, little children. That's why we did not find this word, little children, in any other gospel. The same word is used only by John in First John, in First Epistle, First John, and he repeated several times. First John chapter two, verse one, twelve, twenty-eight. John, First John chapter three, verse seven and eighteen. First one, First John. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, First John chapter 5, verse 21. So this le word, little children, impacted John very much 
That's why he received repeated several times. The only one who repeated also the, the same word, St. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, when he said, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. So the Lord told them little while. The short period indicated in this passage could have been a couple of hours. Then he will be taken into the trial. Because exactly after a couple of hours when he went to Gethsemane, the disciples were scattered, leaving the Lord Jesus Christ alone through our, his judgment and the trial. They could not go into the place where his trial was held. Then the cross signified the isolation of the Lord from his enemies as well as from his loved one, from the eleven. And no one could accompany him on that path. Jesus will carry the cross by himself. As Isaiah said, I have trodden the wine press alone. It also means that the time is not yet come for them to enter into his glory. They have a mission. They will go and preach the gospel. Then at the end of the mission, they will be uh, martyred. All of them except John the Evangelist. So they cannot yet come right now. They have to continue his earthly ministry to prolong the testimony which he has given concerning God and which God the Father has given concerning the Son. That's why he told them, you cannot, uh, you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come. But the word you seek me, you will seek me as person in distress, under great concern, not knowing what to do or where to go, you will seek me. But there is a difference between the unbelieving Jews who were seeking him, but they couldn't go and died in their sins, who could never go to where he went, and between his disciples, though they could not follow him right now, yet after all of them followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was actually the desire of Peter that he expressed in verse 36 as we will read it right now. So before his departure from them, he wanted to leave them with a very important commandment. What commandment? The commandment of love. But he called it a new commandment I give you. Why it is a new commandment? It is a very old commandment. Uh, but it was renewed by the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the standard of his love, as he gave it a greater depth and potentials to apply it. So the commandment was extended to embrace lovingly every person, even enemies and opponents. On the cross, he prayed for those who crucified him. God, don't uh, forgive them because they don't know what they were doing. So he told them, now you need to love one another as I loved you. In my love, I loved my enemies, and I prayed for their forgiveness. You need to love one another in the same way. 
So the command was new in that it is based on Jesus' example of love. And St. John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, he says, If God so loved us, if God loved us in this way, we ought to love one another in the same way. Christ loved to his people in giving himself a ransom for them was a model and a standard for theirs to one another. If we love one another, we should be ready to lay down our life for those whom we love. That is a standard. As Christ loved all his children without any distinction, so we should love one another, whether poor or rich, weaker or strong, lesser or greater, love one another. As Christ loved them not in word only, but in deed, he died on the cross and in truth. So should they love one another with a pure heart fervently, and by love they should serve one another. The word agape is the love of Christ. And agape has four descriptions. It is unconditional love for everybody. It is limitless love. There is no limit for this love. It is a sacrificial love. And it is a willful. It's a decision. It's not just an emotion. It's a decision of the mind. More than emotion in the heart. So sacrificial, unconditional, limitless, and willful. That is the new commandment. Love one another as I loved you. So here, when the Lord thought of their state of orphanage, they, they will be orphans uh, when he departs from them. That's why he gave them the bond of union. They should be always linked to one another and to him by this bond of love. And then the Lord said in verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the distinctive uh, uh, character of a disciple of Christ is not how we appear outside. It's not out, uh, outward appearance. Or the ex extraordinary gift. I should speak in tongues. I should cast out demons. I should move mountains. I should heal the, the people. No, no. It's not that. What distinguished us as disciples of Christ is our love to one another. Brotherly love is the distinguishing character of a true disciple. And he who does not have this love in his heart is not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He told them, where I go, you cannot come. But Peter want to follow him. So he said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. That's why I told you the Jews could not follow him afterward, the unbelieving Jews. 
But the disciples, he meant, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow uh, later on. So, the Lord has told his disciples previously that they could not go where he was going. Uh, but Peter, his earnest love, uh, actually, he could not take these words. And the word of the Lord, you cannot come where I am going. You cannot come. These words start resonating in his mind and in his ear. That's why he told him, you know, I am ready to follow you wherever you go. As we read in verse 37. He put, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. I am ready right now to go with you. Danger, death, wherever it is, I am going with you. Uh, the Lord, when uh, Peter asked him, where are you going? The Lord did not give answer. But he repeated the, the same statement in verse 33, where I'm going, you cannot come. But he added, but you will follow later. For, for St. Peter and for the rest of the apostles, the place must be prepared and the way must be opened before they could go. As he told them, I'm going to prepare a place for you and then you will come with me. St. John Chrysostom said, <clears throat> Peter the apostle was so aroused with the anticipation when he heard the Lord's word, where I am going, you cannot come. And he asks, Lord, where are you going? He said that to reveal his state of mind and emotion, as he was anxious to follow the Lord, and so was not just seeking for just more information. So when he told him, where are you going? Not just a curiosity, he want to know this piece of information, no. Where are you going? And I will follow you. Even to death, I am willing to lay down my life for you. This explains his hastily response, I will lay down my life for you. Peter thought himself ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ before the Lord had died for him. So before the Lord died on the cross, Peter told him, I am ready to die for you. Uh, Peter, who had seen the glory of the transfiguration, the majesty of Christ's power, the depth of the uttermost love of the Lord Jesus Christ, was ready for any sacrifice, for the most complete self-abandonment. He was willing to die. But he miscalculated his strength of wealth. Yes, he had the desire, but he miscalculated the strength of his will. That's why the Lord replied in verse 38, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Christ responded by these words as questioning, not questioning Peter's sincerity, but questioning Peter's strength. The Lord has no doubt that Peter in his word was very sincere. 
but the Lord questioned his strength. St. Augustine said, what a great promise Peter made. He, he promised, I will lay down myself for you. He only considered his yearning without taking into account his potentials. So he's willing, but his strength was weak. The Lord actually uh, prophesied about Peter's denial. And this prophecy was recorded in the four Gospels. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 13. But in the Gospel of St. Luke, uh, also uh, he gave him hope, as we read in Luke 22, 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. This encouraging statement is what we should remember when we fail our Lord Jesus Christ in word or in deed, that we can turn again to him and be forgiven, as Peter, after his denial, turned again to the Lord and was forgiven. This actually concludes chapter 13 from the Gospel of St. John. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.